Welcome everyone. To those of you that are joining us online, welcome to you also. We are rejoicing together in our fellowship here today already and looking forward to a wonderful day of fellowship that's just going to keep going after our service. I hope everybody's made plans to join us up at the Matthews for our annual Christmas celebration at their place. I hear the roads are well sanded and um, with due caution. Um, everyone should make it just fine. And I'm looking forward to uh, that time of fellowship and, uh, and food and uh, rejoicing together uh, as the day goes on. All right. Uh, I'd invite you please to turn uh, with me to the Gospel of Matthew. For the month of December, these uh, Sundays, I'm going to spend some time looking at the person of Jesus Christ, particularly as it is revealed here in this particular passage. I would invite you to stand with me, please. I'm going to read starting at verse 18 and then read down through verse 23. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God adds his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Please be seated. So through the years, uh, there have been occasions when my, my, uh, my children have had uh, occasion to uh, be a little bit chagrined when they end up getting used as a sermon illustration. And uh, so I've tried to be a little nicer about that over the years, but I'm going to use one of my kids as a sermon illustration again today. And that's Chelsea. You know, when Chelsea was two and a half years old, I'm sure she remembers this. I asked her why we pray in Jesus' name. And her answer was precious to me. She said, because we love him. And that wasn't the answer I was looking for. I mean, I went on to explain to her the concept of substitutionary atonement. <laughs> But nonetheless, she hit, she hit upon, uh, she hit upon the truth, uh, coming at it from the other way, so to speak. I mean, why do we love him? Because he first loved us. And how did he demonstrate that love? He loved us and gave himself for us, dying on the cross for our sin. And why does his death mean anything? Because he is 
Emmanuel, God with us. So we pray in His name because there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. So Chelsea really gave the right answer after all. You know, the most controversial, controversial area of theology that the church has ever known has been that concerning the nature of Jesus Christ. How can men understand the mysteries of the Godhead? The words of Scripture are clear, however, even if the truths behind them are inscrutable to us. So, what do the words, Emmanuel, God with us, mean? And what significance do those words carry for our faith? We're going to divide up this particular passage, uh, actually this phrase, Emmanuel, God with us, we're going to divide this up and, uh, into three, three sections. We're going to cover the, the first aspect of it this week, and then over the course of the month, we will look at the others. So uh, you may notice, I think I did this in your outline. Let me see if I... I did. So uh, you'll see there, God with us is man, and then it is God with us. The with us is what I'm going to focus on particularly looking at the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> it's interesting, Brother Joe, in his, his uh, uh, discussion uh, a little bit uh, about the Nicene Creed, noted that that creed was an answer to the heresy of Arianism. And Arianism, as he mentioned, was an attack upon the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there were other uh, heresies during that early time as well that attacked his humanity. Um, Doceticism uh, was in the first century. It denied that uh, Jesus was actually human at all. Uh, it would be the equivalent. Had they had the technology in those days, they would have essentially been saying that Jesus was uh, like a hologram. That his physical body wasn't really real. He was, he was a spiritual being uh, not physical at all. You get into the second century and you've got uh, the heresies of Apollinarianism and Eutychianism is a little bit later. Uh, both of these particularly attacking the, the humanity of Jesus Christ or the humanity in relationship to deity. That um, In the one case uh, that... Uh, uh, the, our, his humanity was is swallowed up uh, by his deity, and that uh, his humanity was certainly uh, in 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 question. Uh, they they and that's these were motivated by a desire to uphold the deity of Christ, but they went the opposite to the opposite extreme and ended up in error that way. I'm going to focus on the humanity of the Lord Jesus today, and then, Lord willing, his deity uh, next week, and then we're going to talk about that phrase, Emmanuel, and its significance. So let's think about our Lord Jesus Christ as a man. Our Westminster Confession puts it this way in chapter 8, paragraph 2. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, 
did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion. In other words, uh, it wasn't that he started off as a man and became God, or started off as God and became man. He remained as and was no longer God or no longer man. He was fully both. Without con uh, conversion, composition, uh, let's, uh, let's take uh, some of the parts of uh, Godhead and some of the parts of manhood and create this new thing. Um, fully God and fully man. Uh, or confusion. Without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Again, we are talking about some pretty incredible things here. And I do not pretend to stand before you and say that as we go through this, you will have all your questions answered about how the God of the universe became man. But it is very true, and without doubt, that that's what the scriptures teach. And so let's think about that. It is an actual reality. You know, some of these heresies were put, were put into place, were begun by, by guys that were pretty well-meaning. They were well-intentioned uh, in many cases. They were zealous to try to defend God uh, from man being uh, mankind uh, and its contempt. And so uh, they find different ways to try to explain different things and try to get the mystery down so that people wouldn't be confused and in the process end up in error. You know, it's, here's a... <clears throat> anytime you're doing theology, brothers and sisters, keep this principle in mind. God doesn't need your help defending his name. He calls upon us to do it. But he doesn't need your help. And the fact is, is that whether mankind understands it or not, the reality of who he is remains. And so that's, that's where, uh, it's kind of like the error of Uzzah with the with the Ark of the Covenant, remember? Uzzah thought he needed to help God protect the Ark of the Covenant, so he presumed to put his hand out when the, ark, when the oxen stumbled and the Ark shook on the cart, which of course they were doing it wrong to begin with. But Uzzah presumed that the Lord needed his help, and the Lord struck him dead for his presumption. There are... Some theologians that we wonder why when they bring their books out, the Lord doesn't just strike them dead for the same reason. Because they're just as presumptuous. But the Lord in his grace doesn't do that now. Nonetheless, he's still a God who is able to take care of his own name. So when he tells us that he's, full, yes, fully God, which we're... Which, um, some of the other, we'll look at some of the other uh, heresies briefly next week because there were others that wanted him only to be man. Because they just couldn't, they couldn't wrap their heads around this. 
And many of the, uh, the cults that we see today are really, as, as again, Brother Joe mentioned, are but descendants of these ancient heresies. Because we just can't understand it. How, how can God be, how can it be fully God and fully man in one person without, without confusion and without composition and without uh, 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 conversion? How can that happen? We don't know. So therefore, since we can't explain it, we're going to distill him down, reduce him down to something that we can wrap our minds around and have some reasonable uh, hope that we might be able to understand God. But frankly, brothers and sisters, if we could fully understand God, he wouldn't be much of a God. And it's rather presumptuous anyway. We don't even fully understand ourselves. But we somehow presume to want to think that we can fully understand him. So let's look at the data that he gives us in his, in his word and come to grips with that and be content with his revelation of himself. And as we see it, then wonder and marvel that he truly loves us, that he truly became one of us so that he might take on not only our nature, but the load of our guilt and pay for it as man so that he could truly be our representative, not just a hologram, not just a figment of somebody's imagination, not just a spirit being, but an actual human being. So, God with us as man. First of all, man physically. This is kind of the obvious part. And yet again, that early, that early heresy of uh, uh, asceticism said, no, not really man, not really a body, just uh, kind of a, an, a, an image, a vision that we had. But the scriptures make, beg to differ. He's a man who was physically born of a woman. We read of that here in, in uh, Matthew chapter 1. The confession of faith states it admirably. We read that here. But Isaiah 7, 14, familiar verse to all of us. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's, that's what's quoted in Matthew chapter 1. An actual physical woman gives physical birth to a physical child. And this, this child who came into the earth through this physical means, taking on human nature, uh, though um, not coming through Adam, he did not inherit Adam's fallen nature, but nonetheless was fully human. And that body, that physical body of his, was subject to weaknesses of the flesh. We read in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 2, When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry. Uh, he's, his body was subject to hunger, to pain, to, uh, to cold, to heat, to weariness. When you cut him, he bled. 
when you, when you beat him, he was bruised. He was bruised for our iniquities. For the shedding of his blood, um, he would end up dying from uh, that, that uh, injury to his flesh. A body subject to weakness. And Christ, throughout his earthly ministry, often demonstrated that. Needed a time to go and recoup and recover. Needed a time to uh, rest and be restored. This physical man, this, this Lord Jesus, physically cleansed the temple. Remember there in John chapter 2, verse 15, when he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. He was not just a, a vision or a, a hologram that just scared people to run out of the temple because they thought they saw a ghost. He had a whip of cords and he was pounding folks with it and turning over the tables. This is no mere ghost. This is a physical man. He was proved, uh, he proved uh, his resurrection by physical signs. Remember in John 20 when he appeared to the disciples who were, who were all gathered and trying to figure out you know, what do we do next? He didn't, he didn't just appear to them and say, hey, here I am, just believe me. Right? He said, here's the prince. Put your fingers in there. Put your fingers in, the, in my side in the gash that was made by the spear. And no longer doubt, but believe. And he ate with them. Um, and, and ministered to them physically. When he uh, washed their feet, it wasn't a virtual washing. It wasn't AI washing their feet. He girded himself with a towel and washed the feet of his disciples and encouraged them to serve each other in the same manner. So he proved his resurrection and, and just demonstrated his physicality throughout his ministry. And there, then there is the title that is the most frequent title uh, of the Messiah. This phrase appears 194 times uh, in the scriptures, um, both Old and New Testament. And that title is the Son of Man. He says in Matthew 13, where he's describing that parable, parable of the soils and talking about the different components, he describes the sower in verse 37 as the son of man. He who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, prior to the prophets, uh, this phrase, son of man, uh, referred to human beings or descendants. But there's a shift in the book of Ezekiel where that term, which very clearly is tied to those who are the descendants of Adam, the physical sons of Adam, is applied by Ezekiel, um, uh, 90, there's 93 times in the Old Testament, in uh, Ezekiel, uh, it's the title of the prophet. 
the one who would come. The phrase is used in Daniel for the one who's standing in the fiery furnace. Eighty-three times uh, this phrase is used in the New Testament. All but four of them uh, are in the Gospels, and all but one of them referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. This phrase came to be used as uh, a title that would encompass the Messiah's humanity, along with his lordship, his sovereignty, his ministry of revelation. And this should not surprise us, particularly because he, as the second Adam, was the one who was fulfilling all of the terms of the covenant that God had made with Adam there in the garden. It wasn't just about being a man for Adam. It was about dominion. It was about, about governance. It was about properly imaging the God who had created all things. And it also ends up then, because as Jesus fulfills all of those things in the midst of a rebellious world, the Son of Man title uh, highlights the fact that as the Son of Man, he was subject to, or maybe I should say susceptible, maybe a better word, to the, to the persecution, to the point of death, and how he, as the Son of Man, was obedient in his sufferings. That he endured actual death. And that he, he uh, truly was physically resurrected. And that he physically and ultimately, as our representative, would return and be ultimately glorified. So in short, this title, the Son of Man, declares the scope and aim of his redeeming work. And that is humanity. He is not a distant God. He is a God who is with us. A God who is of us. Who has earned the right to rule and reign his own. As you read in 1 Corinthians 15. That Jesus died, rose, and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. This is our, our holy Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully one of us. And that is an astonishing thought. It's a humbling thought. Because we can look at him as the one who is perfectly obedient and see in him what we should be and yet are so far from being. Um, there's a, a line in the hymn, Smitten, Stricken, and Afflicted, one of my favorite, favorite hymns. But the hymn writer is expressing his wonder at this, this Savior that suffered on our behalf. And, and asks the question, how do we come to understand how bad our sin is, how awful our rebellion is, how unworthy we are? And he says, Mark 
the sacrifice appointed. Take note of the sacrifice. Take note of what stamps out our guilt. Tis the Lord, tis, tis, tis the Christ, the Lord's anointed, who took upon us, in his perfection, who took up our sins upon him. The contrast is stark. But if Christ was not one of us, if he was not truly a representative of the sons of Adam, and if he was not truly the son of man, he could not be our advocate, he could not be our substitute. But God made it happen through this, the miracle of the incarnation through the Virgin Mary. But he wasn't just man physically. Uh, that's one of the other heresies is that, okay, he's a body, but he's only a body. He doesn't have a human soul. He doesn't really have a human spirit. That's uh, the Apollinarianism one. He's just a body, uh, which is um, kind of raises to the level of wokeism in our day, as far as the sense that it makes. He was also man emotionally and mentally. Everything about him, he was fully man. Flesh, yes, but also spirit. You might remember what uh, one, of the, one of the sayings of Christ on the cross just before he died. What did he say? To the Father. He prayed to the Father. said, into your hands I commit my body. Is that what he said? No, he said, I commit my spirit. And he released his spirit, gave up the spirit to the Father's safekeeping until he would take it back again by the Father's commandment when he rose again. How is that spirit, how is that emotional and mental uh, component of humanity demonstrated in the scriptures? Well, first of all, in Matthew chapter 4, we read about Jesus' temptation. Now, what would be the point of Satan going through all the rigmarole of trying to tempt Christ to worship him? if Christ was not subject to temptation. Christ was subject to temptation as a man. He was without sin in that. He never succumbed to any of those temptations to sin throughout his life. Um, his human nature uh, was truly conformed to his divine nature. Something that we're called upon to strive after and pray for and, and know that the Lord works in us to bring it about. Jesus was perfect in that regard. So that when temptations came his way, he was so, so connected to, the, to his Father that he was able to withstand those temptations. And of course, those of you familiar with that account know that his primary weapon in withstanding temptation was what? You remember? Quoting the scriptures. Yeah, yeah. The word of God. So he was subject to temptation. Uh, comes as far as emotions are concerned. He, he knew sorrow. He knew love. He knew anger. Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Weeping at the, at the, at the tomb of Lazarus. 
the the aspect of love. How many times in the Gospels is it stated that Jesus was moved with compassion when he looked out upon the crowds, when he looked upon these these lost sheep of Israel, and even those that were standing around at at the tomb of Lazarus as Jesus wept. What was what did they say? Look how much he loved him. Yeah. And Jesus' tender concern for his sheep was shown when he commands Peter over and over again in John, John's gospel to feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. He has a concern for you and me. In his high priestly prayer, that compassion and love is demonstrated as he desires that we be one together just as he and the Father are one, that they may be protected, that they, his, his sheep might be um, uh, guarded from the evil one and error. Anger, well, we already talked about driving the, the money changers out of the temple. Um, when uh, the Pharisees, in their stubbornness and in their rebellion and their perversity, opposed him, um, we read a time or two that his, his anger was, was stirred up uh, against them because of the hardness of their hearts. And all of this is very much in keeping with, we're going to talk about this next week a little bit, but with his, with his full divinity as well. Because if you read through the scriptures, you see all of these same things that are manifested uh, in, in God's responses to his rebellious people. Uh, and all of these things, uh, sorrow and love and anger. Uh, there was... He had joy, he had uh, compassion, he had tenderness. This is, these are the, the things of a, of, a, of a man who is created in the image of, the, of God and bears those what are called communicable attributes, those attributes that are shared um, with the Godhead. Interesting, and this is one of the things that boy, folks through the centuries have, have wrestled with, tried to figure out. When he was born as an infant, um, Ephraim the Syrian, um, early Eastern church father, wrote hymns on the nativity. If you ever want to have, have an interesting read, they're available online. You can go look up Ephraim the Syrian and look up his hymns on the nativity. And uh, he's trying to wrestle with this. It's like, you were in the womb. You were, you were creating wombs while you were in the womb. Kind of boggles your mind because he's still, he's fully God. And yet, he chose when he became man to lay aside some of those glories and humble himself. And in his, in his humanity, fully humanity, he was capable of increasing in wisdom, of learning. Learning skills, learning speech, learning uh, thought processes. And we, we do read that he, uh, he did grow in wisdom and the knowledge of the Lord. Jesus 
Luke chapter 2 says, uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So he was able to increase in these things. This is fully man. And highlights, uh, again, this connection with us as we must grow and increase in wisdom as well. And then, uh, kind of uh, along the same lines, but a little bit different, um, also from Luke chapter 2, we read about Jesus as a young man in the temple, right? Verses 46 and 47. Now it was that after three days they found him, Jesus, in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So not just practical matters of wisdom and, you know, as you grow up, you figure out how to do things and all that kind of stuff. But particularly in the area of learning and applying the scriptures well, this was something that he, he increased in. Now, as a 12-year-old, he was pretty remarkable. Makes you wonder what kind of, uh, of, of, of family devotions were going on in Joseph's home. Uh, I presume there was some significant instruction going on there, particularly since they, his parents, knew who he is. But nonetheless, as he goes there, he demonstrates, yes, a high level of understanding of what the scriptures were all about. And he was certainly aware at that time. that. But to be able to apply the scriptures well, when he's the one who was involved in their inspiration and is the subject of them. It's a pretty remarkable thought. And yet, a necessary component of what it means to be fully man. And that's what the scriptures say to us. You know, in, in 2 John, uh, verse 7, there's a statement there by the Apostle John that it, uh, there are many deceivers, many antichrists. Those who would come in and say that they, were, that they were the Messiah or maybe they were pointing to somebody else besides the Lord Jesus Christ. In all of those cases, um, just as we have in, in cults and heresies today that, that use the name but are talking about a different God. They're not talking about the God of the Bible. They're not talking about the Lord Jesus of the Bible. They want to apply his name in any way they please, in a way that makes sense to them. I was speaking with uh, a Mormon friend some years ago who uh, was taking me to task about the Trinity, and his reason that he didn't like the Trinity is that he said, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And so therefore it's not true. That was, that was the essence of the argument. And the answer is to say, but this is what the scriptures say. Anyone that wants to, to anyone that comes to you and says, let me tell you, let me explain to you, you know, the, the, how the incarnation works, how that happened, how the Holy Spirit came upon uh, the Virgin Mary and caused that to take place, caused that pregnancy to take place, without sin, without confusion, without any of those things, God makes it happen. And by the way, he's still fully God. Anybody that wants to say to you that 